Well, good day. Nice to see you here on a cold weekend, and good to be doing a series, Church on Fire, when it's cold, right? We're in the right series. We're in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 1029, the last book of the Bible, chapter 2. Um, just before we get into the message, just want to encourage you to, do, to register for that weekend with Christopher Ewan. Uh, you can come to church on that weekend without registering the regular services, but if you want to attend the special sessions Friday night and Saturday, please register online or at the Resource Center. It's going to be a great weekend. So, I brought something in my bag today, went shopping just before church, and... Uh, Here's our bread. Judy and I, we buy bread from a, a bakery called Silver, Hill, Silver Hills. This is a non-GMO sprouted grain product. Really good bread. Uh, you like it, eh? I can't have it. But um, <laughs> no, I'll give it to you after the service. Um, this is our favorite, organic seeded bread. And the good thing is, is that if you go to the bakery, you can buy seconds for half price. So good deal, excellent bread, Silver Hills. You have to go to Abbotsford, though, to get it, unfortunately. But, hey, gas is cheap there as well. So you can go there, come back for free. We buy bread at that break bakery quite often. Where do you buy bread? Do you buy bread at the same place all the time? Do you buy the same bread? You know, in in the Scriptures, uh, bread is a metaphor for life, for sustenance. It symbolizes God's provision. It symbolizes the Word of God that nourishes us. It symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. So bread actually symbolizes God's supreme gift to us, Jesus, the bread of life and all that he brings to us, the gift of eternal life. So if the bread of Jesus is actually that good, why would we ever go for bread in any other bakery of this world? That's the question that opens our reflection today. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as I said. And just before we read it, let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you teach us as you taught your first disciples. We ask for your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand your word and to apply it to our lives so that we can live for your glory in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, the uh, letter that we're going to read to the church at Pergamum, it's in the format of an imperial edict. And so the sender of the message will say something about himself, then he'll make a statement of awareness. He's aware of some things that are happening in the city of Pergamum. Then he'll give an exhortation and he'll end with a promise. Let's read it. Chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality." 
So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this was the message for the church at Pergamum. We're going to ask two simple questions. What did it mean for them in their day? What does it mean for us today? According to Jesus, Pergamum is the city where Satan's throne is. Why would he say that? Why does Satan have authority in this city? Does Jesus say that because the city was built on terraces leading up to an acropolis that, uh, you know, hung over the city 1,300 feet below? Was it because the city was actually set up against a cone-shaped hill that looked like a throne? Was it because of the geography? Is that why Jesus said that that was where Satan's throne was? Pergamum was also an intellectual center. It housed one of the best libraries in antiquity. According to scholars, 200,000 scroll, uh, parchment scrolls. That's a lot of parchment. So Pergamum was a city that was enamored with ideas, with learning, with teachings, with philosophies. Is that why Jesus says that it's where Satan's throne is? On the hill overlooking the city, uh, there was an acropolis. There were temples and altars, and two of them were prominent. One was the temple to Zeus, the greatest of all Greek gods, known as the Savior. His temple was built on a, a ledge jutting out over the city. At the base of his altar, there were images depicting Greek civilization triumphing over barbarian ways, all kinds of serpents in that depiction of Greek civilization. The residents of Pergamum literally lived under the shadow of that altar. So is that why Jesus says, you live where Satan's throne is? There was another temple that was prominent, the, the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. The image of this god was a serpent, god of healing. In the darkness of the temple at night, you could go there, lie in the temple, and snakes would slither over your body. The, the belief was that the healing was in the touch of the serpent. I would never go there. But people from around the world did. They went there desperate for healing. So, is that why Jesus says that Pergamum is where Satan's throne is? Pergamum was also the warden for the emperor cult, and so it was understood that citizens not only should worship the emperor, it was required of all citizens. So does, is that why Jesus says that's where Satan's throne is? Jesus, when he looks at Pergamum, he sees that Satan, the deceiver, actually has the mind of the city. The city was a center for a way of thinking, a way of seeing that blinded people to the truth of God. This way of seeing, it permeated the politics, the philosophies, the medicine, the religion, all of life. There's a battle for the soul in Pergamum. There are external pressures. There are even more lethal pressures that come from within, and Jesus knows it. That's why he has a word for the church. It's the same battle that's waged in every city around the world and in our city as well. How does Jesus present himself? 
Verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In verse 16, the sword comes out of his mouth. It's a battle sword. It's the sword that judges. The imagery comes out of the the book of Isaiah. It's interesting that uh, the sword was actually the symbol for the city of Pergamum. Why? Well, Rome had given to Pergamum the right to judge, to inflict capital punishment. What's Jesus saying to the church? He's saying to the church, you need to know that I am the one that has life and death in his hands. I'm the one who speaks the true word of judgment. I am the one who controls or determines your destiny. So, first point in your outline, remember who holds the sword? Jesus. Jesus holds the sword to this day. Remember. What does Jesus say to the church at Pergamum? What does he see? What's he aware of? You see, the church is facing pressure from outside. In Jesus, he begins by commending the church. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You see, the church was persecuted because it refused to worship the emperor. It refused to confess him as Lord. The the disciples of Jesus at that time, they were considered by the Romans to be atheists. They were considered to be those that did not believe in the gods. They were considered to be the haters of the human race. Even when one of the members of the church, Antipas, was martyred, they stood firm. They continue to confess Jesus as Lord, and Jesus knows that. He commends them. In fact, he calls Antipas faithful witness. That's the name of Jesus. You know, I believe that if our Canadian government would legislate that we should no longer pray to Jesus, no longer sing praise songs to Jesus, no longer read his word, no longer confess him as Lord, I believe that most of us would resist. We would resist because we would immediately recognize this orientation or this mandate to not be from God. External pressure is rather easy to discern. It's the pressures that come from within that are more difficult to discern. And Jesus is aware of something else going on in Pergamum. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, Jesus is referring here to an influence that comes from within. A different kind of bread is being baked in the church oven. Some of the members at the church in Pergamum, they're being drawn by, they've become attached to the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Balaam, it's a Hebrew word that means Lord of the people. Nicolaitans is a Greek word that means Lord of the people. So I believe both words are are referring to the same group that is seducing members of the church with their teachings. Where does that word Balaam come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. 
the people of Israel were on their way to the promised land, and the king of Moab wanted to curse the people of Israel. So he hired a Gentile prophet, a diviner, a medium, to come and curse the people of Israel. He was unable to curse the people of Israel, but he taught the Moabites how to ensnare the men of Israel. The Moabite women, they seduced the men of Israel with sexual promiscuity and led them into idolatry. What does that story in the Old Testament have to do with the church in Pergamum? Well, the people of Pergamum, they would go to the temples to worship gods. When the god was being worshipped, food would be offered to the idol. Then with the food that was left over, there would be a feast. The god was being honored. It was understood that the god was actually present at the meal. A special bond was being formed between worshippers and the gods being honored. In this setting, new disciples of Jesus, they were invited to participate in these feasts, invited by their families, by their friends, by their co-workers. What should they do? The Christian response, Paul wrote this. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul is saying, yes, the idol, just wood, just stone. The meat, it's just meat. But when you participate in an idolatrous feast, something spiritual is happening. Do not be naive. When you enter into that feast, you are submitting yourself to the presence and authority of demonic forces. Something spiritual is happening. Now, members attached to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, they thought quite differently. They said, no, you can assimilate with your culture. You can go to these feasts. Nothing will happen to you. It's totally okay. Greco-Roman society was also sexually permissive. And so one of the ways of thinking was that you can do whatever you want with your body. It won't affect your soul. Body, soul, completely separate. The body, it's just matter. You can engage in sexual promiscuity. It will have no effect on your soul's well-being. Demosthenes, he was a Greek philosopher, and he wrote something that reflected the thinking of the day. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. A tragic way of thinking, but it was the thinking of the day. What was the Christian response? Well, the Christian response was rooted in Genesis and in the teaching of Jesus, which said that body and soul are actually one. We are an integrated whole. That's why Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So when we engage in sexual activity, we are united as whole persons, body and soul. We are attached intimately. We simply cannot walk away unaffected. Smeads, a Christian writer, has written this, Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. You just cannot do that. 
That's why Jesus places boundaries around sexual activity, because he created it. (laughs) He knows it intimately. No one understands sexual activity like Jesus. He wants us to enjoy it, but he knows that it needs to be experienced within a bonded, lasting relationship between husband and wife. So what is the teaching here? Attach yourself to the one who defines reality, Jesus. Attach yourself to the one who defines reality, Jesus. As we sang earlier, he is the only one who is true. According to Jesus, when we engage in sexual promiscuity, no matter what the form, we violate ourselves. We harm ourselves. Now, the Nicolaitans, they said, no, no, no. Follow your feelings. It's all about love. You can go through these experiences totally unaffected. Doesn't that sound current? Sometimes it's much harder to be a faithful disciple where the atmosphere is permissive and tolerant than in an openly hostile society where the lines are clearly drawn. Let me repeat that. Sometimes it's much harder to be a faithful disciple where the atmosphere is permissive and tolerant. It's all okay. Than in a a society that's openly hostile and the lines are clearly drawn. How are we seduced in our day? Does this happen to us? Are we drawn in by the breads of this world? You know, our distancing from God, our detachment from Jesus, it doesn't usually begin with a physical act of sexual immorality. It doesn't begin with us placing ourselves before an idol in a temple and bowing down to another God. No, it begins with some questions. Some seeds of doubt are planted in our minds. Did did God really say that? Was his word not written for another time? Aren't we beyond that word today? Isn't this a new time? This is the 21st century. Don't we need a new morality for our day, for our time? Often a seed of dissatisfaction has already been planted in our hearts. We wonder whether the bread of Jesus is enough. We've prayed for something, and God has not answered the way that we expected, so we feel let down. So then when we go to other bakeries and eat other breads, we feel kind of justified. We go eat the breads of pleasure, gaming, sports, food, internet pornography. Where do we satisfy our hunger? We go to the breads of learning. Philosophy and psychology and sociology and anthropology and medicine and science and business. And these are all very fine disciplines. But when we enter into them without any reference to Jesus, what is actually influencing our way of seeing? We eat the bread of possession. We accumulate wealth and academic titles and degrees. What feeds our identity? We eat the bread of hashtag me, me, me on social media through our relationships. Where are our hearts attached? You see, 
The spirit of the Nicolaitans, the spirit of Balaam, it actually is the spirit of our age as well. It's so easy to be carried by the ways of seeing in our culture, to have our culture actually influence the way that we believe, the way that we think, what we value, the way that we behave. According to mainstream culture, there actually is no ultimate source beyond ourselves, so we can define what is true, and we need to feed our desires. It's not only okay, it is right, it is justified, so go eat, drink, be merry. Now, as disciples of Jesus, how do you and I know whether or not we are eating from the breads of the spirit of our our age? Well, it's through our heart attachments. We just need to stop for a minute, minute and reflect. Where are our hearts attached? What are our passions? What were we passionate about this last week? Proverbs 27, verse 19. <clears throat> As water reflects your face, so your mind shows what kind of person you are. What does Jesus say to the church at Pergamum, verse 16? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Do a U-turn. Change your mind. Think again. If you're being deceived, acknowledge it. Resist the spirit of your times. We need to resist the spirit of our times, and this has to be intentional. It doesn't just happen. We have to think carefully about the messages that we are receiving every day. We are called to submit our thinking, our ways of seeing to the way of Jesus. You see, the battle for the heart is a battle for the mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. J.B. Phillips, he translates that verse in this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, First and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We are to love God with our minds. What will happen if the church doesn't heed Jesus' warning? Well, if it doesn't act, Jesus will intervene directly, imminently. This is not referring to the second coming. No, it's about Jesus coming with the sword in his mouth and discerning and judging what is happening in the church at Pergamum. He will war against this spirit that mixes grace with immorality, that mixes his way with the ways of a permissive, immoral spirit. Why is he so intolerant? That's a question that's asked so often today. Why is Jesus so intolerant? Why doesn't he just let us do what we want to do? Well, because he came full of grace and full of truth. He knows the truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you're going to know the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus knows that if we start digesting a compromised gospel, which is not really a gospel of grace, but the message of a permissive, immoral spirit, he knows that we will be enslaved, that it will kill us. 
You see, Jesus loves us. <laughs> That's why he gave his life so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. That's why he's so passionate. He speaks truth to us. Our attachment to Jesus is tested in very practical ways, I think, every day. We're tempted to compromise. Chris Chung, he shared his testimony last weekend. If you were here, you saw him baptized. And God has done a marvelous work of transformation in his life. He shared a bit more of his testimony this last week, and I'll read it for you. This is Chris. When my wife and I found out we were expecting, we began reevaluating our finances. I took a new job at a courier company. After working for several months, a police officer pulled me over one morning and served me with a driving prohibition because of my previous record. I chatted with the officer about the implications of losing my license, how I was turning my life around, now going to church. Which church do you go to, she asked. Willingdon, I replied. Oh, I love Willingdon. Just a note, if you're pulled over by the police, just say, hey, I go to Willingdon. (laughs) It might help. Chris goes on. I discovered she was also an attendee at Willingdon. The officer suggested that God may have another plan for my life, and this could be a blessing in disguise. After leaving the area, my wife and I were on the way home when I received a call back from the officer. She had mistakenly handed me all the copies of her tickets and asked if we could return her copies. What's he going to do? We both knew what this meant. If I threw the tickets away, this ordeal would be dismissed. I knew I needed to do the right thing. When we returned the tickets, she was very appreciative and conceded that no one would have done that. God's been renewing his mind. That evening, my wife's water broke. We rushed to the hospital. Within a couple of hours in an emergency C-section, our son was born. We spoke about how I would not have been there for her, for the drive, the hospital recovery, or to see my son's birth, had I still been working that day. We knew that God had a hand in this. Later that evening, I received another surprise. I received a call from my boss offering me a new office job and a salaried position. This all happened within 24 hours, losing my license, losing my job, welcoming my son, son, and the gift of a new job that provided the stability that we had prayed for months ago. God heard us and provided. Is our Jesus faithful? Is he always faithful? Why would we ever compromise and think that we might be fed by another bread? Jesus makes sure promises. Look at the sure promise he makes to the church at Pergamum. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
this requires a bit of explanation. So to the one who conquers, to the one who enters into the victory of Jesus, Jesus promises hidden manna. During the wilderness journey of the people of Israel, God fed them with manna from heaven. After entering the promised land, some of that manna was stored in the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark was placed in the temple in Jerusalem. In 586 BC, the Babylonians invaded Judah, took over Jerusalem, and in that moment, Jeremiah the prophet, he hid some of the manna. That was the tradition. From that time forward, the people of Israel, they were nurturing this hope that the Messiah would come and he would again feed the people of Israel with manna from heaven. That hope, that vision, that was what was behind Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And there in that moment, having fed the 5,000, he says, I am the bread of life. What is Jesus saying to the church at Pergamum here? Well, what he's saying is that just as the people of Israel were sustained by manna from heaven in the desert, so I, the bread of life, will sustain you. I am here to meet your needs. The question for them, and of course the same question applies to us, will we be satisfied to eat from the bread that Jesus offers? He's the bread of life. Or will we be seduced into eating from other bakeries? Jesus then promises a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Why a white stone? There are many interpretations, but I think two are most important. One, the victors at Roman games, after their victory, they were given a white stone. And with that white stone, they could enter into the banquet feasts. So Jesus is saying, if you enter into my victory, then I give you a white stone, and that is your ticket to my feast when I return. This is your ticket to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Another interpretation is this. Roman jurors, when they voted for acquittal, they would give the person declared innocent, they would give that person a white stone. So again, Jesus is saying, I actually have life and death in my hands. I determine your destiny. If you enter into my victory, I give you a white stone. Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our judge. He promises a white stone, and on the white stone, a new name. A new name. The name certainly represents our new identity in Jesus Some believe that the new name just expresses who we were truly created to be in Jesus. I believe that the new name is just the name of Jesus. We are his forever. If we enter into his victory, we receive the bread of life. If we enter into his victory, we are guaranteed a place at the banquet table of our Messiah. If we enter into his victory, we are given a new name, now and forever. His promises are sure. Jesus is saying, attach yourself to my sure promises. Don't believe, don't be drawn into the promises of the breads of this world, those promises that are empty. How do we attach ourselves to Jesus and his sure promises? 
Well, if we don't have a way of challenging the messages that we hear every day, we will be seduced. We will be carried along by the messages of our day, by our culture. And so we need to just humbly, before God, recognize that we need to hear His Word, His living and active Word. Acknowledge that we don't have a corner on the truth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, when we hear the word of Jesus, when we hear him speaking to us through his word, it slices right through our ways of seeing. It slices right through our thoughts and our attentions. It lays it all bare. It exposes our emptiness. It unveils our limitations. It reveals the eternal truth of God. And you and I need this every day. Yesterday, I was, I was wrestling with something and just wondering how to walk through a certain circumstance. And as I thought about that, there was this anxiety generated within me, even a desire for revenge. And I thought, how do I get beyond this? And I read the Scriptures, and all of a sudden, I realized that my thinking was so far from the thinking of Jesus. I needed to think about that situation, that circumstance, in a completely different way. And that anxiety in my soul just reflected my lack of trust in him. You see, every day, you and I, we need to hear the word of God. We have to let the word of Jesus renew our minds. And when we're confronted by the word and it's revealed that our thought patterns need to change, our behaviors need to change, then we do a U-turn. We say, okay, Jesus, help. help me think in a new way. Help me see things in a new way. Help me relate to people in a new way. And usually when we're trying to make these changes, we need the help of our brothers and sisters. We need the help of others to understand how to do it. Often others have experienced the same way. Sometimes the same thing. Sometimes they've taken some steps that we have not yet taken. That's why we have discipleship groups, discovery groups, life groups, so that we can walk together. None of us were meant to walk alone. We need the help of others. And then remember this. Jesus comes full of grace and full of truth. Jesus understands our city. He understands greater Vancouver better than anyone in this room. Jesus understands our culture better than any of us. Better than the best thinkers of our day. Jesus understands your reality and my reality much better than we do. So that's why we submit to him. And he sympathizes with us. He knows our reality. Look at what Hebrews says, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, it's referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus knows us, 
and he's present. He comes with words of love, words of life, words of grace, words of truth. And it's only with his help that we can face the external pressure and also the internal pressure that comes from within. He's present to help us. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. And, and let's just take a brief moment uh, of reflection. Where, where did you and I go for bread this week? Did you go to Jesus? What did Jesus say to you? Did you go for bread elsewhere? Invite the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts. What needs to change in the way that you think? What needs to change in your habits? If we're convicted of something, Jesus invites us to repent, to do a U-turn, and to allow Him to renew our minds, change the way we think so that we might live differently, behave differently, live for His glory, so that we might experience His life. He has come to give us life, to give us life abundantly. So, Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness. We are tempted to eat other breads every day. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remind us by your Spirit to come to you for bread, the bread of life. Oh, Lord, I pray that our love for you would be renewed as we prayed a few weeks ago, that we would love you as we did at first. Lord, Restore a hunger for your word. May we love your word, Jesus. May we acknowledge our need of you every moment. We are influenced to to think in, in many different ways. We hear many different messages. We are sometimes overwhelmed with what we are being told. And so, Jesus, we ask that you help us to discern how to live in our day. And we thank you again for your word that is there to encourage us, to inspire us, to motivate us, to correct us, to teach us to live as you would have us live. We want to live for your glory, Jesus. Have your way. And if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, 
you've been eating from all kinds of bakeries around the world, all kinds of breads, and you've realized that they just don't satisfy. And you want to receive today the bread of life, Jesus. You want to receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord. Know that Jesus says to you, taste and see that I am good. He invites you to know him. And if you want to know him, then pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. And I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your Spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, feel free to come forward or go to the prayer center. Uh, We'd love to encourage you in your journey. So I pray that you would have a great week walking in the presence of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.